Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips, and as we record this in early February 2023, I am feeling hopeful. We're recording this the day after President Biden delivered what I thought was a surprisingly good, unapologetic, and forceful State of the Union address. And that gives me hope as we head into the 2024 election cycle. The past 15 years have shown, as I've tried to show in my writing and speaking and everything else, that the majority of people in this country prefer Democrats to Republicans. I think that's been pretty clearly shown from Obama's elections all the way up to the quote unquote surprise of the midterm elections. But the challenge is inspiring and investing in that majority so that it turns out to vote at the polls. The Republicans actually know this much better than Democrats, and that's why they're so laser focused on stopping people from voting. But if Biden and the Democrats can continue to embrace and champion even a moderately progressive agenda, given how extreme the right wing agenda is, it makes me optimistic about 2024 holding the White House and Senate and winning back the House next year. And I have a column, by the way, that went up yesterday at The Nation about taking back the House. And so people can check that out if they want And speaking of the House of Representatives, there is a lot happening there that makes me hopeful as well. And that's because historically, one of the driving forces for progressive change is the energy, idealism, and activism of young people. And that energy and idealism is shaking up national politics in important ways. And as you know from our last podcast where I recorded from D.C., I'm back from the nation's capital, where I had a chance to sit down with several new members of Congress who are shaking things up and very exciting ways. And our guest today is an important young leader in her own right, and she has been instrumental in helping these new members of Congress become members of Congress. Now, if you listen to some commentators, certainly on the right and some in the middle, today's guest is potentially responsible for much of what is wrong with national democratic politics. But as I've gotten to know her, I believe she and her work are inspiring examples of what politics could and should be morally urgent, highly disciplined, and very effective. And I don't know if I'd say she's a movie star, but she is in two movies. And I'm excited for our listeners to get to know her as well. And so for that conversation, I'm joined as always by my co-host, Charlene Chang, someone who has been clamoring for us to have more leaders from the next generation on the show. Hi, Charlene, how are you? And would you like to introduce our guest? Hey, Steve. Yes, I am definitely always like, no, there are so many young leaders out there so exciting and that people don't hear about, you know, mostly what we hear about in the news. And this is the nature news. I used to be a journalist is like bad news or news that makes you feel stressed out and makes you think that everything only like sort of the bad or stressful news makes it to the front page. But there are so many uh, exciting young leaders that are doing incredible things every day. So I'm excited that we're going to get to talk to one of them today. In terms of how we're doing, we're doing great. My family just wrapped up another two-week celebration for Lunar New Year. I don't know if people know that, but it is actually actually traditionally two weeks as a beginning and middle and end. And each day has different significance, different foods. While we don't get to celebrate it as traditionally as we could, could if we were, you know, somewhere in Asia like China or Taiwan with our relatives, we did get to celebrate it with different friends in our community here in the Bay Area. We're really lucky because the Bay Area has a lot of activities. And it's just been, it just feels nice to get that what I call my second new year. So happy new year again, everyone. And it's the year of the rabbit. My daughter's a rabbit. And so happy year of the rabbit. And we're we're just glad to be getting closer and closer to spring. Days are getting longer. And I'm really excited to talk to today's guest. 
Today's guest is Alexandra Rojas. She's the executive director and co-founder of Justice Democrats, a political action committee focused on electing working people to Congress on a progressive platform and without corporate donations, by the way, important key to the work they do. She was a former staff member on Senator Bernie Sanders' 2016 presidential campaign. And before that, she was a student organizer during her time at Orange Coast College in California. In 2019, Alexander was named on the Time 100 Next list for her work in building electoral power for progressive candidates. And Steve, like you mentioned, she's been featured in two films. They're absolutely incredible films, and I do encourage people to go check them out. She was featured first in the 2019 documentary called Knock Down the House, which is just terrific. And this film followed four young women, including one, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, or as she is definitely known more often as AOC. And that film, again, followed four women who ran for elected office. And it's a documentary. I believe we can. uh, I think I checked it out last night to double check, but I think you can still see it on Netflix. The second documentary, To the End, came out in December last year. And To the End highlights the emergence of a new generation of progressive leaders and the movement driving some of the biggest changes we've seen in politics today. And I believe you can see that film on its own website. The documentary is called To the End. So welcome, Alexandra. And you'll have to let me know, is it Alexandra Alex for you know conversations? And we are so thrilled to have you here with us today. So welcome. Oh, my goodness. Thank you so, so much. I'm deeply honored to to be on and <laughs> I'm, I'm so grateful for the, the introduction and recognition of of all the work that not just me, but our entire team at Justice Democrats um, on staff and volunteers have have made all of those things that you just mentioned possible. So really happy to be on. Yeah, well, we're really grateful for you to be here. And I think that part of the reason we wanted to have you here is, you know, I've been in politics for a long time. And there's a lot. Uh, I'm actually I'm, re- I'm watching um, Gaslit on uh, Hulu. It's about the Watergate thing, which I like. I remember watching the Watergate hearings when I was ten years old, showing you what <laughs> weird political nerd I was. But I've been about to on just so much uh, self-importance and aggrandizement. And I could even like I went to the Capitol two weeks ago. I just walked into the halls. You can just it emanates from people about the way they strut around and they're such a big deal. Yeah, And I think what really resonated with me and our team, I really wanted to have you on, is you guys don't do that. I mean, partly you're largely, you know, many of you are women of color, so that's a different way people watch you function in the world, but you keep your head down and you do the work, and that that really has been something that resonated with us, and so we really wanted to um, introduce you to our audience and to the people, you know, who follow us if they didn't already know about you. So thank you so much for coming. I have to say... And just preparing to talk to you today and having you on as our guest, I was getting more into learning about Justice Democrats. And I just was I was just like amazed by how much you guys have done. So I, I want to give our listeners some context, because I think that many people may have heard about Justice Democrats, but they might not totally know you know all the background. So just to give our listeners some background and context, again, one of the more famous, as I mentioned, newish members of Congress is AOC and AOC, she was one of the first candidates recruited by Justice Dems in 2018. And that's something that I just don't think a lot of people know about. And she was uh, uh, one of the things people do know about if they know about her is that she was elected as the representative for New York's 14th congressional district. She went from a complete what I would call a political unknown, right, to a near 
household word. I've read an article that said um, it was a New York Times saying that she's considered the second most popular politician that people talk about besides Trump, which is kind of incredible. And uh, in political circles on the right and left, she's talked about a lot. She's followed by 13 million people on Twitter, which is just amazing to wrap your head around. And she has come to personify a certain type of young leadership, especially a young progressive leader. And unfortunately, she does get because of her, what I call like, she's outspoken, she's bold, she's strong, she um, speaks her mind, and she's incredibly intelligent. She she does get vilified by the right, but also sometimes people not so much vilified, but you know, kind of um, side eyed by even people who we would consider our side. And I think it's because she's so unapologetic and also, of course, cannot be ignored the fact that she is a young woman of color. She's an outspoken, unapologetic Latina. And that often just rubs people the wrong way. You know, it's not it's not the type she doesn't look like the kind of leader that we've had in the past. So I wanted to ask you if you can share for those who know about AOC through the news, but don't really know her, know her as a person. What was she like before she was elected and how did she come to run for office in the first place? Yeah, no, I mean, I I think, you know, what makes Justice Democrats candidate recruitment process, I think, special and important is we're trying to do politics differently. You know, like you mentioned, many people, you know, including many of our own allies were not with Alexandria until she won her election. And we believe in the importance and and just believing in the power of the extraordinary, ordinary story, right? Because the story of of Alexandria, at least before she got to Congress, is the story of so many young women of color mm-hmm. uh, who who have entered the economy to support their families and have grown up in a generation of increasing gun violence, increasing police brutality, climate catastrophe, and so much. Um, so I think for us, it's important that as opposed to only seeking out those who can afford to run or those that, you know, the Democratic Party deems as next in line in the political hierarchy, because the person that she was challenging, uh, Joe Crowley, was the fourth most powerful Democrat in the House. Um, he also ran the Queen's Democratic Party machine and certainly, you know, had a trajectory for somebody else uh, to, to to one day take up that seat. But we're recruiting everyday working Americans, uh, such as nurses, principals, and community organizers like AOC, like Jamal Bowman, like Cori Bush, to one, see themselves in federal office, but also to be able to win and repeat that success of building that infrastructure over and over. Uh, So AOC, you know, when we first met her, she came into our process through uh, a nomination by her brother. Um, and that's how many of the Justice Democrats that we ultimately end up endorsing or recruiting come in. They're nominated by their community. Um, and her brother, like I said, told what I call an extraordinary, ordinary story of uh, a young woman that was incredibly smart, incredibly gifted, had a hell of a resume for you know what she did in college and, and had a lot of opportunities to go so many different places in life, but chose through a lot of different reasons, but especially because it was needed to go back home and to help support her family mm-hmm. and was inspired by, uh, similar to, to myself, you know, who was sort of too young during the, the Obama years, uh, was certainly paid attention and was inspired, but really felt a call during Bernie Sanders' primary run in, in 2016. Uh, and she had also gone to Standing Rock um, and, and was doing a number of different local organizing 
activities on on the ground in in her community and obviously nationally. So it just felt like a a great synergy. But that's where it sort of first interacted was a nomination by her brother, and it sort of was a long process. Part of it is documented and knocked down the house. A big a big part of it on what it was like after that. That's incredible. So can you kind of like maybe clarify and walk through some of the just the because it. I think to the outside world, it's like AOC came out of nowhere. And then it's like, it's it related, it's kind of like, oh, Justice Democrats, what's that? That's kind of an AOC thing. It also came out of nowhere. So can you kind of explain a little bit? You talked about, you know, having worked on Bernie's campaign, and then I know there was this whole, I actually don't even know the specifics of the trajectory in terms of brand new Congress, and then Justice Democrats, and then recruiting people. So you can just kind of... More, basically break down and walk down what that you know, like origin story was? Yeah, yeah. And also just to back up of like what Justice Democrats is for, and, and you did such a great explanation, Charlene, but you know, we're recruiting and supporting progressive Democrats all over the country, but starting with Congress. And our goal is to build a mission-driven caucus in Congress by electing more leaders like AOC, like Summer Lee, uh, who is now going to be the first black woman to ever represent uh, the state of Pennsylvania. Uh, yes. <laughs> and Jamal Bowman, who are going to represent our communities and fight for solutions that match the scale of the existential crises of our time. Um, and we were founded in 2017. Like I mentioned, you know, many of the co-founders and super volunteers were inspired uh, after Bernie Sanders run for president uh, in the presidential primary. Uh, and inspired, like I said, a generation of of young folks like myself to get involved. And I think believe that there was a place in politics and government and in this movement uh, for people that not only looked like me, but believed that the only way America could truly succeed and live up to its promise is by leaving no one behind. And I think that means holding our own Democratic Party accountable when our leaders don't live up to that standard. And what we saw during the presidential primary process was versus the general election, which is really critical because Republicans are obviously the clear uh, boogeyman in the room. It was, it you know, the Democratic primary process is our way as voters, as, as Democratic voters to really steer the direction of where we want the party to go, how big the vision uh, and, and who we in, include in that in that is. And so I think we saw the power of that in Bernie Sanders' presidential race, where you saw things like Medicare for all, uh, increased taxes on the wealthy, free college, just a number of different issues and and doing it all by having a big agenda and asking people to step up and do big things when it came to voter mobilization was huge. And so we thought, you know, what if we took that model instead of at the presidential level and love Bernie, but instead of, you know, it's, a, it's an old white socialist from Vermont, what if we ran a national campaign and a slate that looked like America, that looked like uh, the diversity of ethnicity, of background, and of lived experience of, of Americans. And we aimed that at Congress, which at the time and still is a majority millionaire, majority white, and, and very imbalanced to what working America goes, poor and working America goes through on a daily basis. So that's that's how we how how we started was was really after Bernie won was sort of the idea, and then you mentioned brand new Congress, which I'm also a co-founder of. They still exist. Their executive director is is awesome. But then you know later on in 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 2016, right, Donald Trump won, and so I think the importance of making sure that the Democratic Party was really ho holding ourselves accountable to leaving no one behind and bringing the strongest possible opposition 
to the the fascism and white supremacy that's just rising every day in the Republican Party. Can you talk a little bit about the recruitment process? You mentioned AOC's brother nominating her, and then I listened to some another podcast where they were kind of talking about some of the rise of the you know, JD and brand new Congress, but about also like ha- people not being able to nominate themselves right? because you know there's a lot of kind of like ego involved in politics. Like, oh yeah, I'm the greatest person in the world. So, can you say a little bit more about how you decide? which candidates that you're going to back and get behind? You know, I like I said, I think the recruitment process is so critical. It's what makes Justice Democrats really unique. Um, And the process for us is part art and part science. We look at the demographics of the district, the ideological record of the incumbent. We really want to add to the majority and make sure that everyone that is in a blue district is an actual champion because they have the opportunity to do so, representing some of the most progressive voters in the country and most democratic voters in the country and over also overlaps with tends to be some of the most uh, working class and uh, majority people of color in in the country, uh, at least in, in, in some of the districts that we've participated in. So and we also look at the proposed candidates history of service. So folks kind of come through the website. They then get vetted by our team through sort of a, a lengthy process that involves a questionnaire, many Zoom meetings, many phone calls and, and in-person meetings. Uh, but the the art part is sort of the organizing work uh, and talking to people that, you know, is able to to really try and understand who really walks the walk and, you know, who's going to be able to withstand the pressure and basically figuring out what in their life experience, in addition to policy, which is right, questionnaire is really important, where they stand is really important, but it's not just a checkbox of what you believe in. Anybody can do that. It's to us, I feel like why we spend so much time, it's about what you've experienced in your life that's going to prepare you to withstand the pressure of being surrounded by 400 people, plus people telling you to not be who you are and to leave people behind. So I think that that piece is is really important in addition to sort of the policy metrics that we go on. But we, we try to be really intentional in the avenues that people come into that nomination form. And we also do a lot of research and targeting to try and, you know, the nomination form, I like to say, is kind of like, for lack of a better term, like a shotgun approach. It's 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 obviously capturing everything. We also balance that with targeted district research to get to know a district and power map communities, you know, to to identify where it's going to be the the best use of our time and limited resources for ourselves on on staff, but also when we ask all of you, all of the supporters across the country to invest in these races. So you can see over time, you know, when AOC was elected, she came into a class with and 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 knocked down the house. You see there's other candidates that that lose. And she's one of the only four people there that lose. Well, there was actually a slate of over 70 candidates um, that lost that that we had endorsed. And we've, you know, we can kind of talk about the lessons learned, but we've really revi- refined our strategy to kind of limit the number of races that we can go deeper and invest in uh, to make sure that we're, we're even more intentional about how we win. I want to elevate that point and just trying to light on it and really, you know, um, kind of salute you guys for that as well. Because so it's so much of power, so much of life, right? I guess right is driven by like human behavior, ego, ambition. I mean, it's to the extent, right, that uh, you know, Martin Luther King, one of his speeches, talked about the drum major instinct. Everybody has this drum major instinct. I want to be first. I want to be important. And King tried to turn it to 
be a drum major for justice, but that's so fundamental and it's, it drives and it's, you know, there's so much of ego and ambition around who runs for office, but we kind of gloss over that. Like we're seeing it now in um, California with the Senate race, right? So it's like, oh, Katie Porter and Adam Schiff and Barbara Lee. But it's not like there's any process or analysis around who's the best person, what's the what's the state's population, et cetera. It's like it begins with these people want this, and then we all have to respond. To yeah, that. like I have the political capital that makes me best set up to do this, or like I'm. It's it's not usually starting from a what's best for the you know. Right. What and that's what I think is so great about how you guys go about this in terms of and particularly this thing about not letting people step forward themselves and say, yes, I'm the greatest person in the world. So I just think that's so unique and it really, you know, really, really resonated with and, me. And I actually that brings up a good point that, you know, I, I you know, we're always kind of talking about this on the team that I do want to I, I, I still believe in that. And I will also say that as we've come into this work, we have made it you know, more possible for young working class women of color to see themselves in Congress and they want to step up and be a part of this movement. And that is exciting. So I will say there is a balance where, you know, there is a little bit of ego when you decide to run. I think you have to have a little skin in the game to be able yeah. to say yes to it, but it can't be everything. And I think that especially we're trying to be mindful of, especially right now, we're trying to create more space Right. for working class women of color who typically don't see themselves. So we're trying to also balance that with especially those folks who finally are starting to see themselves and start and their communities are starting to nominate them. They're also kind of taking that into consideration as well, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that's a very good point. I, I thank you for raising that because it does, you know, I mean, this meme of curing yourself with the confidence of a mediocre white man exists for yeah. a reason, right? That's and right. so- it's a different dynamic. And I think that's part of the underappreciated uh, reality of the how visceral the national support yes. has been for a leader like Stacey Abrams, particularly when she said she, was yep. going, she wanted to be president. It's like yep. people who look like her are not encouraged to be yep. able to see themselves in top leadership positions. So I totally get the thing about the, the balancing of those pieces. Yes. Yeah, I, I wanted to just jump in here and say it just became increasingly clear to me as I watched the documentary and learned about Justice Dems and your work, what Justice Dems and, you know, those on your team have done. It's just such a game changer. It is really disrupting and it's really exciting to me and it's necessary. But I think, like Steve had said before, for many people, they feel like this just happened overnight. And, you know, just further to give our listeners further context and appreciation. I know we're not supposed to ask, you know, people their age and things, but I do think it's important because I think it really says something about exactly what this next generation is capable of is, do you mind if I ask you how old you are? No, not at all. I'm, I'm 27 years old and I've been doing this pretty much all of my twenties. I didn't end up in college, just went straight into it. (laughs) So when you became executive director of Justice Dems, you were held um, so f- five years ago, five years ago, right? Yeah. You're going to make me do the math. Early, um, early no, 20s. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Early 20s, 21, Early 20s. Like, so, yeah. I mean, that is really something that I think is just very inspiring. It's not something that I, I'm excited to let people know also because there are a lot of young listeners and also a lot of people with young people in their lives. And the fact that you were doing this work in early 20s is, I think, very inspiring to a lot of people. 
I talk a lot about how uh, Isabel Wilkerson was a uh, you know, huge influence on her book, Cast, when I was writing, you know, how we win the Civil War. And what it, one of the things I really took away from that is this piece around who plays what roles and what do we think of in terms of who gets to play what, what roles, right? I mean, most absurdly, people are saying that Idris Elba can't be James Bond because that's not what James Bond looks like, right? Oh, not much. Right. <laughs> I'm all for that. Well, yes, I know you are. Sure. <laughs> so, Sign me up. But it's like, you know, we've had 46 presidents, all of them men, 45 of them white men. So the role of president is reserved for, you know, a white man. And the conception we have of entrepreneur in our society, we worship the word entrepreneur, but it's always like a young white guy. It's yeah. almost always what comes to mind. And what I really was a revelation to me in writing my book was how the people who I feature, uh, who, you know, in Texas Organizing Project, Lucha, uh, Alliance San Diego, these were young women, mainly women of color, who built from scratch multi-million dollar effective political organizations. And so I lift that up in the book. But as we're just talking about it now, that's the same deal with Justice Democrats. Um, Alex and her team have built from scratch a multi-million dollar effective organization that does significant work. So I just want to emphasize that point. And that's what an entrepreneur is and does it without the backing of like, you know, major venture capitalists who shower money on, on the white guy. So I just want to really emphasize that point. To the work part, Alex, can you talk a little bit about the actual work that JD does for candidates? What do you do for them that helps them be be effective in terms of what, as you built up your your operation? Yeah, and and I appreciate you you mentioning that. By the way, I hadn't thought about it that way, but it is it it is totally like a like a startup, uh, or we were, and now we're starting to stabilize. And it and it took a lot of people like listeners on this call making it possible before anyone else <laughs> ever believed it. For at least folks that know about us, but. You know, in terms of what we provide to our candidates, you know, we like we've been saying, we work to elect those who are underrepresented in Congress. So that's working class people, that's women, that's people of color, that's young people. Um, but there are so many barriers to entry for those people to even run for Congress, let alone win. And so we view our role as knocking down some of those barriers. So that's including things like raising early money helping put together a, a campaign team together, having a really successful launch that paves the way for all of the critical endorsements and press coverage and all of the other stuff that, that the campaign needs to, to start off on solid footing. And that's all the way through election day. Uh, so really we say from cradle to grave, from day zero, all the way through to the end, we're there for our candidates. And I think that's part of this this recruitment and campaigns process and what it means to, to I think, really build that mission-driven team. And I think why we've been so successful in the face of, at, at least this cycle, you know, approaching tens of millions of dollars being spent against us. I wanted to, again, go back to the moment when AOC did win her primary, because uh, that is a really dramatic scene. It's in knockdown in the House. But also, now that you've given us the context of how uh, there were 70 plus candidates and this was during the primaries that, that they didn't win during their primaries. That's right. Yeah, we, we get involved mostly in the and and almost exclusively in the primaries mm. and, and the general election this year for Summer Lee, which we can you know, we can talk about in a bit was was one of our first really, really big ones. OK, got it. And so in, just to let listeners know, there's this scene. It's very moving and knock down the house. 
she, uh, AOC wins her primary victory and the camera cuts to you, you're wiping your eyes. What was your reaction internally when she won her primary? Did you all see this coming? And also, how did, after she won, how did that affirm the work that Justice Dems was aiming to do and the mission and some of the lessons that you took from that election? We had gotten a poll maybe two weeks before, and me and maybe two other people on the campaign, including AOC, knew about the poll. And the poll showed us, and it was like a nice poll, one that we finally could afford because <laughs> we had just, <laughs> we could have, we, we had just finally gotten money and they cut us a good deal. And we were down double digits. Like, wow. Seemed like there was no way that we were going to be able to pick this up. But, you know, there's wow. polls as, we've come to know, right? Which I I see value in polling. I'm not one of those that says like completely throw away poll numbers. I don't think it should dictate your entire strategy. You know who you are and what you believe in and what you want to say. Just more data is helpful for informing. But in the case for for most polling, it doesn't capture our base of voters typically, right? It doesn't capture Mm -hmm. uh, people, a lot of people under 45 or 35 in a lot of cases that, you know, we were actively turning out. I was running the distributed field program at the time, which was like the texting, the phone banking and, you know, mobilizing volunteers that weren't immediately in district to do canvassing activities and stuff like that. So, you know, it was really scary, but we all had hope. And that is the same thing that from when we got into this, we had gotten in, I think, 14 months, something like that ahead of time. Like we knew that this wasn't going to be a race where we raised a ton of money and like outspent Joe Crowley. It was we got in early. We were going to knock on every door. We're going to lean into our authenticity in such a diverse community by telling the story of, of who Alexandria is and who Joe Crowley isn't um, and what he's mm-hmm. not doing. And I think that was really effective. But I think in particular, focusing on turning out young people, young people of color really turned turn the tide in that election and showed up. Uh, I forgot the exact percentage points, but showed out in record numbers during a, a congressional primary that they typically don't. And that was huge. And in addition to that, like you, you see and knock down the house, how quickly the results got called. Like it was just, mm-hmm. you know, like even outside of that, it it, it was just a, a historic, bad, yeah, a, a historic, a historic landslide victory. But it it was hard fought and definitely didn't come out of nowhere. Well, speaking of hard fought, I want to lift up and if you talk a little bit about one of the more unpleasant developments in national, even democratic politics, particularly this past year and the past couple of years. And that is the the attacks that came on, well, most particularly Summer Lee, former guest on this podcast, firing to be one of the first, to be the first um, black woman from Western Pennsylvania in Congress. And all these attacks came from, you know, ostensibly Democratic donors attacking her. And then just to name it, because I think we have to talk about it on the progressive side. So APAC, which is the, you know, it was the American Israeli Political Action Committee or an offshoot of that grouping. And so a lot of Democratic donors who had historically been Democratic donors ostensibly saying they wanted to, you know, fight for the interest of Israel manifested their many millions of dollars of spending by attacking women of color, Democratic women of color in the primaries. Most notably was the summer lease situation. So can you both talk about what that was like, what happened, and then how you guys managed to fend it off and what that took? Well, first, I want to say, I think the headline here is that because it's APAC obviously spent, teamed up with Republicans by the general election, I think in total, just in summer lease election, 
with all combined spent almost 10 million. There was a pack last week, moderate Dems pack or moderate pack or something, the one major donor, major, mostly Republican donor from Pennsylvania that put out and called Justice Democrats out by name and said, we're committing to raise $20 million to go against anyone, you know, that Justice Democrats supports basically. And, you know, I think that they're trying to make it seem like it's a progressive problem. And and I do think that they're targeting women of color, but this is a problem for the whole Democratic Party. And I think if we as a party seek to have fair elections and actually represent the majority of voters and poor and working people's needs, we have to recognize that this is a pretty big threat, not just around money and politics, but to our democracy and how APAC and and not just APAC, but others in the primary uh, against Summer who felt comfortable enough running ads, calling her not a real Democrat and and darkening her skin, despite you know her being the only elected Democrat in the race is hugely problematic. Um, so I, I think that it's massive that we won and that Summer overcame all of that money. But I just want to emphasize how big of an existential threat I think it is to, to, to Democrats across the board, um, especially as a party that champions democracy and campaign finance reform or is against Citizens United. So I think that that's just sort of one, one headline. Uh, and Summer, you know, she was in an open seat, uh, like I was mentioning. She wasn't she wasn't challenging an, an incumbent. Uh, she was running up against. Uh, uh, there were two other, two or three other candidates in the primary. Only only one that was very viable. His name was Steve Irwin, and he was sort of supported by the Democratic, more moderate establishment in Pittsburgh and and somewhat nationally. And that's where you saw some of the breakdown of where. Apex United Democracy Project spent their money in support of him alongside some some other groups. And then kind of, you know, as they ran ads calling her a, a not a real Democrat in the primary, they then teamed up with Republicans in the general election to run to, to run ads saying that uh, she she was extreme. So it's it's pretty wild that you have Republican donors basically donating to these seemingly democratic PACs then so supporting it's the same groups that are supporting like a hundred plus insurrectionists like a, what APAC does. So it's pretty alarming. Uh, and what it was like getting a million dollars a week spent against you in the last three weeks of the election was, was new for us. Well, not just new for you. And I, and, and I, I think that's yeah, right. new, new for, for justice Democrats, but not for the progressive movement. Certainly. Right. Well, new for small j small d justice democrats right in terms of <laughs> that has not been how politics has operated it's not how democratic politics has operated you know up until the pa- the past two maybe four years and that's why i think it's important to just you know put an exclamation point upon this and then we should probably actually maybe and i wrote some about this in the guardian um, when they're they launching those attacks both on um, summer and then um, it wasn't the same grouping but you still had you know wealthy white, ostensibly Democratic people trying to block Mandela Barnes and his Wisconsin yep. race. Yep. So I don't think people should be able to get away with this. And they should not be able to, to claim, oh, this is about Israel. And one of the things they did, right, they went and so the that seat that Summer now holds was formerly held by Mike Doyle, right? He'd been the Democratic congressman. Yeah. The voters knew Mike Doyle, the Democratic congressman. They went and got a Republican dude named Mike Doyle to try to confuse the voters in the in the general, right? So it's just the level of, I don't even know what the right word, nefarious isn't even strong enough. But I think it has to be called out. And I think that we cannot allow 
this type of action of millions and millions of dollars being spent to uh, the, as a practical matter to block people of color, to block women of color from getting into office. And that's what happened. And they can claim, though, that's not why we were doing it, but it is what they did. And so I think we have to be very direct about that and have that struggle on the progressive side of the aisle heading into, into 2024. Because the other thing is, you take that kind of money, $10 million would have held the house if you put it into the other districts that were more compared that we barely lost. So this is absurd. That's right. And you can see those same groups, their drop off in general election spending. They specifically spent in the primaries against largely women of color, working class who were progressive, and then dropped off their spending almost immediately to to not help Democrats keep their majority. So it's, it's it's a massive problem. And I'd also say, you know, summer was going to be historic in the primary. Democrats broadly had an opportunity to get behind the first black woman to ever represent the state of Pennsylvania, which was part of the original 13 colonies. Uh, so, you know, I, I think it's just important to to recognize too that, you know, we have to do better as a party too in, in rallying behind our values and, and what we believe in, especially when it's, it's such a clear, clear choice. And for JD, you know, summer is our third time helping elect a first black woman to their state delegation with Cori Bush and Ayanna Presley being the others. And, and I think that we have to, yeah, be reflective of that as, as a movement as well. Yeah. Well, on a, a, a happier note, we were, I, my father's from Western Pennsylvania, some feral uh, Sharon he grew up in. So I was, he was, I was telling him that we got in the no summer. I was very delighted to hear about her sentence and whatnot. So. so before we wrap up, I want to just have listeners learn more about you and just to, I want to keep kind of lifting up the importance of who is in leadership, somebody like you being in leadership and the role that Justice Dems plays. I, I don't know if we had mentioned this earlier, but just to let listeners know again. So a lot of people do know about the squad and the squad, you know, referring to in 2018, the uh, initial election of uh, AOC, as well as Ayanna Presley, uh, Ilhal Omar and Rashida Tlaib, right? And these are all women of color progressive, and they are all in many ways first. They all were first in some ways in because of their victories, including Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib being the first two Muslim women ever elected to Congress. Just extraordinary historic victories and making their marks and just cha- changing, starting to change the face of what it means to be a, a leader and a congressperson in this country. So in that context, I wanted to ask you about your own unique journey as a Latina, you grew up in Connecticut before moving to California. You had mentioned earlier that you dropped out. You know, you didn't finish college. You were in community college. And then you went to work for Bernie's campaign. Can you give us a little bit of insight into how you got into this journey? How did you get into politics? And how does this all start for you? Like you mentioned, I grew up in Connecticut. I am part Peruvian and part Colombian. My mom came to this country when she was nine years old. And My dad was born here, but my grandparents from Peru have lived in the same house for the past 30 years. And so I grew up on stories about how much they've sacrificed to give me the life that I have today. And typical to, to, you know, the, the Latino community is not a monolith, but I think something that is definitely a through line is family is everything. Mm. And so I didn't necessarily know that I wanted to be in politics, but I grew up going back and forth to, you know, from to the U.S. and to visit my family in Peru and then coming back. And I, I think that had had a big impact on me and where I was living in Connecticut, which 
as you can imagine, isn't necessarily a gigantic Latino population. <laughs> uh, so, so I feel felt like I needed to to kind of get out and explore, and I ended up going to California, where I I worked really hard to save up when I got my first job when I was in high school. And I my plan was to go to a UCLA or UC Berkeley. I told Steve, uh, I thought in my under five foot self that I was going to play basketball in college. <laughs> yes. But uh, did it, didn't end up uh, going, going that route. But I ended up saving up to go to community college because California has just an awesome, I think, an awesome community college system. I know everything has, has their flaws, but it's one of the few places where students have real power still over mm-hmm. um over their student body and, and and government and stuff like that. So that was, I felt like my first real taste of organizing. I had been to some protests and stuff back home, but I got to work with such a diverse range of, of students, right? That were, you know, like myself, non-traditional. I had to take a year off to sort of prove residency and still work full-time while I was going to school. There were former veterans, there were single moms, just beautiful organizing opportunities. And then I found out that Unfortunately, I wasn't, they they had changed the in-state requirements to transfer and it was going to be, I, I was going to have to pay out of state costs. And I had already been going to community college for almost two and a half years. So I would have had to wait even longer. So I, I sort of was at a time of, you know, I, I was still going to school. I was in, involved in student government, but still trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And then someone sent me a video of Bernie talking on Lake Champlain at the beginning of 2015. And I totally caught the bug, wow. uh, and and I've I I was just one of those super volunteers that was organizing with all these young people across different community colleges, and then bugged my way onto the campaign. and And I've just met so many. I think what what inspires me most for folks listening is is the people that I've met along the way that are working just as hard as I am. That wanna you know, despite everything that they're going through in their lives, they're sacrificing to keep this work going. And I think that's the most important thing that we can do. And what we're doing right now is we're planting seeds. Like every time someone sees a Summer Lee or an AOC or an Ayanna Presley on TV, I want them to believe that it it can be them and that JD Absolutely. and can be there to 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 support them. So that's what that that's what brings me a lot of hope. And and I'll just say because I know we're ending soon um, on on APAC and all of these other millions of dollars coming out to spend us. It's definitely really scary and it's not fun stuff to talk about, but it's because we're winning. It's because we're mm-hmm. successful. Exactly. Uh, yes. Yes. That, that they're coming, that they're, that they're spending this much. Totally. The, the threat that they, you know, are putting out when they spend against summer or even last week when they say they're going to spend $20 million against us, it's because they're trying to, to, to beat us into submission. And it's so critical that we don't, because each time we overcome those millions of dollars, it makes them that much less powerful, makes their money that much less impactful. So that's what's exciting to me about doing this work. And what keeps me going is all of the people. And it's high risk, but high reward when we're building power for poor and working people. Yeah, yes. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I just want to emphasize and affirm again this point about the it takes more than good sentiment. It takes being well organized. And that's something that I think we've really gravitated in, uh, to what the work you guys have done. You've taken a lot of good energy and sentiment and motion, and you've 
built an organization that has, you know, a small dollar donor list and you've got staffing and then you provide support for um, campaigns and with ads and polling. That's all high level organization. And that's what we're, and I try to lift up from this in, in my book as well. But to it, yes, it's the, we have to have the leaders step forward and we have to combine it with the, I when I was coming of age, I used to, you know, we have this great man theory of like leadership, right? And so I was all like, oh, Martin Luther King gave this great speech and then everybody flocked to the, and people were like, well, first of all, you have to set the microphones up for Martin Luther King to give a great speech. Mm-hmm. Then the summit of Montgomery March didn't happen in one day. They had to set up camp. They had to uh, uh, feed, you know, hundreds of thousands, hundreds of people. And so it's that organizational infrastructure, which is a key part of social change. And that's what I really am very excited about. Yeah. What you guys and it's what we're do. and it's what we are if we're really if if we're really trying to help people it's what we're going to be expected to do when we govern so we got to get good at it now exactly all right well thank you so much um Alice, for joining us uh, thank you for the work that you're doing we really appreciate your being here and it's all the time we have for today we could go on so many more questions we wanted to cover but i want to uh actually want to give a quick uh Shout out on this point about community colleges. We may, want to, we may want to do a podcast in the future about particularly California community colleges. I was down at De Anza College yesterday and they're doing great work it. there. And there's a whole network of potential there. So we may want to explore that further. But not today. We have to go. So thank you for <laughs> listening to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. You can follow Alex on Twitter at, at Alexandra Sierra, S-I-E-R-A. You can follow Justice Democrats at, at Justice Dems on Twitter. Please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets, and finding us at Democracy in Color on Facebook or subscribing to our newsletter at democracyincolor.com. Democracy in Color is also on Instagram. You can follow us at Democracy in Color. And if you listen to our podcast on iTunes, please leave us a rating and a comment. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production produced by Olivia Parker, with support from Charlene Chang, Fola Onifade, and April Elkier. Recorded virtually with the assistance of the podcast studio of San Francisco. Until next time, support the next generation's leadership and keep the faith.